Section 38 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 The Fertilization of Flowers, Part 1. Few subjects, if any, are better calculated to awaken a lively interest in the investigation of natural laws and the phenomena of life at large than the study of those processes of development whereby the races of animals and plants retain their hold upon the world and maintain a continuous and unbroken round and cycle of existence in such studies more than in any others we seem to gain near glimpses of nature's ways and methods in fashioning the varied universe of living beings whilst the lessons such topics are well calculated to enforce respecting the order of nature as a whole form not the least important result of these investigations the study of even the most commonplace object may under the newer phases of research be made to yield an amount of sweetness and light for which we might be wholly unprepared the day of the peter bells and of uninquiring minds and tenses if not altogether a thing of the past is happily already in its twilight stage the schoolboy with a primer of botany in hand understands things at which the previous generation simply wondered and even if the results of botanical study may occasionally be expressed by the hackneyed wordsworthian idea of thoughts beyond tears the modern student of plant life has ample reason to congratulate himself on having attained the mastery of many ideas which in past years were included under the poetic category of expressive silence the primrose still grows by the river's brim in truth but it is no longer merely a yellow primrose on the contrary the flower is in greater part understood the mechanism of its life is well-nigh completely within our mental grasp and best of all its study has led in the past as it leads even now to the comprehension of wider ideas of nature and more extensive views of plant life than those which formerly met the gaze of the wayfarer in scientific pastures the appreciation of what is involved in part of the life history of a primrose may thus serve as a starting point for more extensive research into the phenomena of plant fertilization at large and this latter topic in its turn falls naturally into its proper niche in teaching us plain lessons respecting the manner in which the wide domain of life is regulated and governed by the fertilization of a plant is meant to be indicated those actions or processes in virtue of which those little bodies named ovules develop in the seed vessel become seeds and through which they are fitted to develop into new plants the unfertilized ovule is incapable of producing a new plant when set in the ground it would simply decay as if it were a leaf or other detached and dead portion of the plant economy when on the contrary it is duly fertilized the ovule becoming the seed has become possessed of the powers and properties in virtue of which it is capable of evolving the form of the parent plant from which it was derived so much for the very necessary botanical distinction between ovule and seed the process of fertilization is thus seen to be that on which the continuance of plant existence depends more closely regarded it is known to be that which is capable under certain conditions of giving origin to new races or varieties of the plant species when the horticulturalist taking the pollen from one species or variety of plant applies this fertilizing matter to the ovules of another variety or species the characters of the two different races are combined and united in the hybrid progeny our gardens and conservatories 
and as we shall strive to show hereafter the natural plant creation at large have benefited immensely in beauty from a knowledge of the changes in color form and size which this cross-fertilization may produce for instance the finest of our rhododendrons are crosses in which the characters of indian and american species have been thus blended the union of the common heart's ease with a large flowered foreign pansy has produced a new stock in which the excellences of both species are found the pelargoniums of our conservatories represent hybrid stocks and varieties which cross-fertilization and cultivation have together produced from the small-petaled species of south africa such results among countless others would seem to suggest that beneath the subject of cross-fertilization or even underlying that of ordinary fertilization there lies hid a mine of knowledge respecting the causes which have wrought out the existing variety of plant life for the plain and unfettered understanding of the subject in its less technical phases or to lay the foundations of knowledge respecting an interesting field of natural history study no better subject could be selected than the history of even the most commonest flower such as a primrose rightly comprehending what is included in the phases of primrose life we may hope successfully to read some of the more abstruse problems presented by the wider aspects of plant existence at large Quote, the ruth of primrose that forsaken dies and the cowslips when that hang the pensive head unquote, afford us delight even when we are living in all the simplicity of botanical ignorance it is not too much to say that their systematic study may lead to the higher delights and more cultured joys included in the knowledge of some phases of natural law and in an understanding of the hows and whys of living nature the elementary botany of a primrose is a matter of few words like every other perfect flower it consists of four parts or circles of organs placed one within the other outside we perceive the circle of fine green leaves which we name the calyx each green leaf of this organ being named a sepal in the primrose or campanula the sepals are united although in many other flowers for example buttercup and wallflower we should find them free and separate the calyx of all flowers is for the most part colored green its obvious use being to form a protective envelope for the other organs of the flower within the calyx we descry the corolla this is the circle of petals or leaves which par excellence we call the flower because it constitutes in the vast majority of flowers the bright and showy portion thereof a flower might botanically or physiologically be perfect enough minus its corolla although the eye missing the bright petals would be apt to regard such a plant as wanting the first and chiefest element of the blossom the common nettle for instance appears to possess no flowers in the popular and accustomed sense of the term but when we examine the plant we readily discover that it possesses parts corresponding to the flowers of other plants in the greater nettle the flowers of one plant are essentially different in that they possess stamens alone from those of another plant which possesses pistils only but in the lesser nettle or in the oak these distinct flowers are found on one and the same plant no vestige of color appears in either however and when we study the flowers in question we find that a corolla is wanting although a calyx is present again in the willow which like the greater nettle has its stamens and pistils on different plants there appears to be no flower in the ordinary sense of the term and the calyx as well as the corolla is found to be wanting in these trees 
The stamens just mentioned form the third set of organs proper to the perfect flower. Looking at buttercup, wallflower, saxifrage, or campanula, we readily see the stamens. They exist as stalked organs, each consisting of a stalk or filament and a head called the anther. The head is hollow and contains the fine yellow dust termed pollen, which at the time of ripening is usually found scattered conspicuously about the interior of most flowers. The fourth and central set of organs found in the flower constitute the pistil, or seed-producing structure. This organ is composed of one or more parts called carpels. Each carpel consists in turn of a lower distended part called the ovary within which the ovules are produced, of a neck or filament, the style, and of a head borne on the style and named the stigma. The style or stigma may be absent, but in the great majority of flowers both parts are present, the ovary being, however, the essential part of the pistil. In the head of a poppy, for instance, there is no style. The bulk of the head, consisting of the ovary containing numerous seeds, and the flat cap or lid representing the stigma of the poppy pistil. As a final observation concerning the parts of the flower, it may be noted that the separate pieces or carpels of which a pistil is composed may either be free and distinct or closely united and adherent to each other, whilst a second fact of importance in the general description of flower structure consists in the declaration that the ripe and mature pistil is the fruit in botanical parlance. True, there may be, as in the strawberry, be found united to the ripe pistil certain other parts which constitute the edible and desirable portion of the plant. The true pistil in the strawberry consists of the little yellow carpels, usually called seeds, which are embedded in the fleshy mass of the fruit formed by the expanded top of the flower stalk. But the aesthetics of taste may be neglected in the strict descriptions of science, and that alone is the fruit in the eyes of the botanist which is formed by the ripened pistil, or central organ of the flower. All parts of the flower, it must be observed, are not of equal value in the eyes of the botanist. Those organs, stamens, and pistil, which produce and elaborate the seed, are physiologically more important than the circlets or whorls of leaves which in the form of calyx and corolla surround and protect them. Yet the latter organs play their own part in the production of seeds, and in some cases serve as the actual means whereby special modes of fertilization are primarily induced and carried out. As the sequel may show, indeed, the calyx and corolla, which in previous years were deemed mere floral envelopes, being credited as such with a merely protective function, have largely risen in importance in the estimation of the botanical world. Since on the form, color, size, etc., of the corolla especially, largely depend the working of those mutual relations which have been formed between the insect world on the one hand and the world of flowers on the other. Peculiarity of a corolla implies, botanically as a rule, peculiarity of fertilization, and the importance of the blossom becomes plainly apparent to us when we discover that in place of the somewhat limited function formerly assigned to it by the unscientific philosopher, namely, that of affording delight to man by its beauty, it subserves the truer and more logical mission of aiding materially the increase of the race to which it belongs, and of which it forms such a characteristic part. Turning to the primrose for practical illustration of the foregoing precepts, we may readily enough find in its structure plain instruction in the build of the flower. The circle of green leaves placed outside the yellow blossom is, of course, the calyx. 
This green cup consists of five leaves or sepals united in the primrose, but free and easily separable in the buttercup or wallflower. The blossom or corolla of the primrose exhibits similarly a united condition of parts. We can tell that it consists of five petals or leaves by counting its prominent lobes or projections. When we tear the corolla in two, longwise, we readily perceive the five stamens, which, however, in the primrose, exhibit a somewhat peculiar position, in that instead of arising from the end of the flower stalk, like the other organs of the flower, they spring from the sides of the united petals. If we seize the corolla of a primrose by its upper portion and pull it gently upwards, the entire blossom with its attached stamens will become detached from the flower stalk, leaving the calyx and pistil on the latter organ. Then, tearing or cutting away the calyx, we may be favored with a clear view of the pistil itself, seated on the extremity of the flower stalk. In the pistil, we behold a body consisting below of the swelled or rounded structure already mentioned and named the ovary. This being cut across is seen to contain numerous seeds or ovules, as the case may be, arranged around a central pillar named the placenta. From the upper part of the ovary arises a long stalk, the style of the pistil, and the style, in its turn, is capped by a flat head, the stigma. In the pistil of the primrose, we therefore see the three typical parts, already noted as constituting the central organ of the flower. The pistil, in this case, it may be remarked, consists of five carpels, so closely united that it is only by the aid of the law of symmetry, or that demonstrating the general correspondence of numbers in the flower parts, that we can determine its composition. Five is the ruling number in the calyx, corolla, and stamens. Hence we conclude that the pistil of the primrose in its composition will conform to the type of the other whorls of the flower. The physiology of the flower naturally follows the consideration of its structure. Living action, in other words, forms the natural corollary to living machinery or structure. Hence we may fitly inquire into the manner in which the work of fertilization is carried on in the economy of the primrose. Leaving for after-treatment the more special features of fertilization, the general scope of the function whereby, as we have seen, the immature ovules are converted into seeds, each capable of developing, when planted, into a new primrose, may be readily appreciated. The stamens, each possessing as its essential part the anther or head, develop the yellow dust or pollen as one of the two elements concerned in the work of plant development and reproduction. Sooner or later, the anthers of the stamens open in one way or another so as to allow the pollen to escape, and viewed under the microscope, the pollen grains are seen to vary greatly in size and form in different species of plants. The grains of pollen may be round or oval in form. In the evening primrose and fuchsia, they are of triangular shape. In the hollyhock and melon, they are spinous, and in the orchids, they are united to form masses called palinia. The pollen grains being conveyed to the stigma of the pistil, they are there attached by the aid of a glutinous secretion which may likewise be credited with a specific influence on the pollen grains in that it appears to stimulate the curious development they next evince. This development consists in the rupture of the outer of the two layers of which each pollen grain consists. Through the ruptured outer coat, the inner layer begins to grow in the form of a long tube, the pollen tube, which penetrates the tissue of the style and grows downwards to reach the ovules contained in the ovary. In some plants, the pollen tubes emitted from one pollen grain may be very numerous, 
although as a rule only one tube grows from each grain. Now the essence of fertilization, that is the production of a seed fitted to produce a new plant, appears to consist in the contact of the pollen tube with the ovule, so that the viscid matter called fovela contained within the pollen grain may be applied to the structures of the ovule. The most important part of the ovule itself is a small cellular body called the nucleus, enveloped in a couple of coverings. The hollow interior of the nucleus is named the embryo sac, and an opening called the micropyle also exists in the coats of the ovule. Through this opening, the pollen tube passes, gaining admittance thereby to the nucleus, and thence to its hollow body or embryo sac, wherein the fovula, or contents of the pollen grain, are discharged. Such is the work of fertilization, and such are the processes in virtue of which the ovule becomes the seed. As the result of these processes, the embryo or young plant is duly formed within the embryo sac, and thus, even before the seed is planted, development has already proceeded to a certain extent. In the seed of a pea or bean, for instance, we readily perceive the rudiment of the stem, the beginning of the root, and likewise the first appendages or seed leaves which that stem will develop. The process of fertilization thus described in its essential nature involves in the case of certain plants some curious details, the mere mention of which may stimulate to an independent research into botanical lore. Thus often the pollen tubes may require, from the length of the style of the pistil, to grow to a large relative extent. In the crocus the pollen tube requires to grow to a length of three inches before it can reach the ovules in the ovary. The number of pollen grains in flowers may be apparently in excess of all reasonable proportions, a fact to be accounted for on the well-founded idea that the pollen of a flower is not usually limited to that particular flower's wants, but may be destined to serve for the fertilization of others of the same species. In the great flowered cactus, Cactus grandiflorus, Morin says there are about 500 anthers, 24 stigmas, and 30,000 ovules. Assuming that each anther contains 500 pollen grains, this will give a total of 250,000 grains to each flower, and the interval or space between the stigma and the ovules of this plant is about 1,150 times the diameter of the pollen grains. Nature appears exceedingly lavish in her development of pollen. If the Tennysonian aphorism that of 50 seeds she often brings but one to bear be true, as it unquestionably is, the apparent overproduction of pollen grains is even more remarkable, although we have to take into account the fact just noted that the development of pollen bears a relation rather to the species and race than to the individual necessities of the plant. Otherwise, Fritz Müller's estimate that in a single flower of maxillaria there are developed 34 million grains of pollen must present itself as an inexplicable fact of botanical science. Even the wheat plant produces about 50 pounds of pollen to the acre. The pollen of the cone-bearing plants, coniferae, such as the firs, larches, pines, or that of the catkin-bearers, amentiferae, is often borne through the air as showers of yellow sulfur-like dust. This dust, falling in regions where the elements of botany are unknown, cause perturbation amongst the unlearned, and result in the penning of epistles to Mr. Editor by way of inquiry whether or not the sulfurous shower is a portent or grave omen of coming disaster or impending peril. The phenomena of fertilization just detailed take place in our primrose as in all ordinary plants, 
but whilst there exists a uniformity in the details of this process, there is also found a literally amazing variety in the fashions whereby pollen is conveyed to the stigma of the pistil. Once placed in the natural position for fertilization, the growth of the pollen tube follows as a matter of course, but the means whereby the pollen reaches the stigma and the various fashions in which it may gain its ultimate position on the pistil constitute features in which are bound up some of the most important issues of plant existence. To rightly comprehend the bearing of fertilization, a glance at our wallflower, primrose, foxglove, or buttercup will suffice as a starting point for further investigation. Within the primrose and the buttercup are situated, as we have seen, the two sets of organs, stamens and pistil, necessary to secure the production of seed and the continuance of the race. Hence it might form a very natural and reasonable inference that the pollen from the numerous stamens of a buttercup flower should be used to fertilize the ovules of the pistil of that flower. Such a process, that in which a flower's own pollen is used to fertilize its own ovules, is termed self-fertilization. Looking at the vast majority of our flowers and plants, which possess each a perfect array of stamens and pistil, the normal course of things seems strongly suggestive of self-fertilization. Hence, in the early days of botany, self-fertilization was undoubtedly believed to be the rule of nature. Now there can be no question whatever that self-fertilization does occur in nature, but there is as little doubt that it is the exception and not, as botanists from the days of Linnaeus, well nigh to our own day, have maintained the rule of plant life. There can be little doubt, for instance, that many small species of the buttercup order, Ranunculaceae, for example, Ranunculus heteraceus, are self-fertilized, because we find the stamens to arch over the pistil and to shed their pollen on the carpels. In Agrimonia, in the same order, the stamens, at first curved outwards, curve inwards, so as to bring the pollen within easy reach of the stigmas. So also in a species of Malvaceae, Malva rotundifolia, Mueller has demonstrated that this plant is self-fertilized, since stigmas and anthers actually intertwine and are thus placed in the most favorable position for the fertilization of the ovules. Some species of geraniaceae, for example geranium pusillum, are self-fertilizing likewise, and many flowers belonging to the rose tribe, rosaceae, such as potentilla, fertilize themselves. It is a remarkable fact that in certain plants, for example many violets, lamium implexicola, oxalis, etc., very small, inconspicuous, and closed flowers are produced, in addition to the ordinary conspicuous and, as we shall see, cross or insect-fertilized flowers. These closed flowers have been named cleostogamous, a term applied by Kuhn in 1867. They are self-fertilized and produce numerous seeds, and their occurrence in the same plant along with cross-fertilized blossoms may perhaps be best explained on the theory that, whilst the ordinary and less fertile flowers will afford to the plant the advantages and benefits which accrue from cross-fertilization, the cleistogamous flowers may be regarded as the normal means for the ordinary increase of the race. What the flower loses in variation by the sparing fertility of the cross-fertilized flowers, it may gain in the number of seeds which the cleistogamous flowers produce. Cleistogamous flowers, likewise, tend to economize pollen, whilst 400 pollen grains may serve the purpose of close or self-fertilization in oxalis, or even 100 grains in some violets, 
three and a half million grains may be produced in the insect-fertilized flowers of the peony, and many millions in the case of wind-fertilized flowers whose pollen, like that of the firs, has to be distributed over immense areas of land. End of section 38. Chapter 14. The Fertilization of Flowers, Part 1.